Revelation chapter 8. We're going to look at the whole chapter this morning. And our passage for this morning brings us to the breaking of the seventh seal. We've seen six seals broken, and today we come to the seventh seal and um, trumpets, which are actually shofars. You want to say that new word today? Shofars. How many of you have ever heard that term before? It's, it was really popularized back in the 80s for a while, and everybody was blowing shofars at uh, church services and conferences and everything, and then it was like another fad that died out. But um, we're going to talk about that this morning. But uh, we are also going to see in this passage as the shofars are blown, the trumpets are blown, uh, they just bring incredible devastation to the earth. And, and uh, what was begun in the sixth seal with the uh, sky being rolled up like a scroll, we now um, uh, see the rest uh, continued. And, and I really don't want you to go away afraid from Revelation 8, but uh, unless you're an unbeliever. If you don't know Christ, if you have not trusted in him for salvation, you should be scared. Um, but uh, for those of us who know Christ, my prayer for this has been that we will see God's promises and rest and hope in his promises as we witness the destruction of the world. So I'm going to begin reading in um, verse 1 of chapter 8, and I'll read all of the chapter. And hopefully you can follow along in your Bible as I read out loud. When the Lamb opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about a half an hour. Then I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and seven trumpets were given to them. And another angel came and stood at the altar with a golden censer, and he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the Lord. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints rose before God from the hand of the angel. Then the angel took the censer and filled it with fire from the altar and threw it on the earth. And there were peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. Now the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared to blow them. The first angel blew his trumpet, and there followed hail and fire mixed with blood, and these were thrown upon the earth, and a third of the earth was burned up, and a third of the trees were burned up, and all the green grass was burned up. The second angel blew his trumpet, and something like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea, and a third of the sea became blood, a third of the living creatures in the sea died, and a third of the ships were destroyed." The third angel blew his trumpet, and a great star fell from heaven, blazing like a torch, and it fell on a third of the rivers and on the springs of water. The name of the star is Wormwood. A third of the waters became Wormwood, or bitter, and many people died from the water because it had been made bitter. And the fourth angel blew his trumpet, and a third of the sun was struck, and a third of the moon and a third of the stars, so that a third of their light might be darkened, and a third of the day might be kept from shining, and likewise a third of the night. And then I looked, 
And I heard an eagle crying with a loud voice as it flew directly overhead, woe, woe, woe to those who dwell on the earth at the blasts of the other trumpets that the three angels are about to blow. These are the words of our God. Whoever is wise, let him attend to these things. Let us consider the steadfast love of the Lord. By the way, Scott picked songs this morning to start that I really like and I could not not sing. And so my voice is already messed up. And uh, so hopefully um, it won't get any worse as I talk here. This chapter, chapter eight follows and is a continuation of the vision John saw in chapter seven in which a great and uncountable multitude of the redeemed along with all the angels celebrate the Lamb's conquering of sin, death, and the forces of evil. As I've, as I've read this and studied this in the past and again, I have wondered so many times how John felt, how he felt emotionally, how he felt physically, as he heard all these people passionately sing, salvation belongs to our God and to the Lamb, and then to hear the angels answer back, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. I, I, as I read stories in the Bible, and I've said this before, I always try to put myself in the shoes of the person who's experiencing what's going on. And it just must have been incredible to listen to that innumerable company of redeemed people, not singing like they're tired, but singing just so excitedly about what God has done and the millions of angels answering back, how that felt. I mean, it, if you've been to concerts, you know, and if you get too close to the speakers, it kind of just drives your body apart. Um, but this is beyond being close to the speakers. This is just all around. And to have been standing there must have been just amazing. But a moment later, as we read in chapter eight, as this vision moves forward to the breaking of the seventh seal, the singing stops. The thunder stops. This thunder that's been rumbling this whole time as the flashes of lightning have been going on stops. There's not a word, it's quiet. So to go from all of that sound experience and the physical feeling of it to just dead silence. I, there was years ago, we were living in Toledo, Iowa, and uh, there was an evening where the weather was really bad. We rarely got really bad weather in Toledo because it sat in a valley and it would usually split and go around, the storms would split and go around us. But this night there was a tornado warning um, uh, to the west of us and the tornadoes were moving right towards Toledo, I mean right on a line for Toledo. I don't know if you guys were still living there at that time. I think you guys had moved over here to Cedar Rapids, John and Pam. But um, it was headed right for us and then our 
um, our alarm, our weather radio alarm went off with a tornado warning for Toledo. The, the tornadoes were coming right at Toledo. And at that time, Rachel and Alyssa, uh, our oldest two daughters, uh, owned their own house a few blocks away in town. And uh, so when the when weather radio went off, I, like a good dad, I called them. And it was, it was late, it was 11 o'clock at night, I think. And I called them and I got no answer on the first phone. And I called the second phone and I got no answer. And um, I already had Terry heading to the basement and I said to her, I gotta get over there and make sure they know because I don't think they had a weather radio at that time. And uh, I said, I gotta let them know and I gotta get them into the basement downstairs. So I hopped in the car and when I pulled out of the garage, I drove over to their house and I got out of the car and it, I've never experienced this before. It was dead quiet and the trees, there were no leaves moving and, and it was heavy. The air just felt like it was pressing on you. It was just eerie and weird and quiet. And I knew what that meant, that, that a tornado was imminent. That's what it's like right before they hit. And um, I, I was a little bit wound up. Um, I went and rang their doorbell, no response. I started pounding on their door, no response. Uh, and, I'm, and I'm counting down where this, you know, the sirens are going off and that's the only sound, but everything else was just dead quiet. I started pounding on their house, no response. Uh, I had a key to their door, but they had the storm door locked, so I couldn't get to the door to unlock it. And in part panic and with a lot of adrenaline, I just thought, hang it, and I grabbed their screen door handle and ripped it open. It actually, the latch was metal and it actually broke the, not the part that it latches into, but that little part that goes in and out, you know, and hangs up on that thing. I broke that in half. It, I pulled that door so hard. I had to buy a new storm door. Um, and then I went inside and started screaming. They had, they had their sound machines on and their phones turned off. And I got them into the basement and hunkered down in the basement with them. And really, uh, my mom used to tell me, God protects fools and babies, and you know which category you fit into. That was her saying to me all the time because I did a lot of stupid things over the time. And um, I, it was, it was, that tornado, it turned out, that tornado got close to the city limits, pulled up, went over the city, and came down on the other side and wiped out houses and farm buildings on the other side. But that's as close as I've ever gotten to be out in a tornado, and it was so quiet, just eerily quiet. But then I think of what John experienced, and to go from the lightning flashes and the rumblings and the voices and the thunder and the, the praise of God, just full-throated praise of God by, by millions of creatures, and then to be totally silent. That is kind of like 
the lull before the storm. As I thought about this, I thought there's a sense of what's coming and the air had to be just electric with anticipation. My mind went back to Genesis chapter one, where the Holy Spirit is hovering over the face of the deep and waiting for God's creative commands to issue forth to begin the creation of things. I wondered if it would have been like the night of the first Passover after the Hebrew people went to bed and they had painted the doorposts and they had finished the Passover meal and they had been promised that if they painted the blood that the death angel would pass over them. But what it must have felt like to hope that was true and that the death angel wouldn't visit you. And as the screams begin to break out around them from the firstborns dying in the Egyptian households, how they felt in anticipation of things. Maybe that's what John felt. But this time the silence, you can feel it. And all the inhabitants of heaven anticipate the last events accompanying God's final plan of his plan of final judgment and redemption. And as it's quiet, someone hands seven trumpets to seven angels. They're standing before the throne. And like the silence off the shores of Normandy on D-Day, it's quiet before God's armies go into battle and violence breaks out. And as John is standing there, he sees another angel silently approach the altar of incense where the souls of the martyrs are. If you remember that from chapter six. They've been crying out for justice. They've been crying out for vengeance and praying to God and that has ceased. And this angel approaches the altar of incense and in his hand is a censer, a golden instrument carrying coals of fire. And we're told that he's given much incense to sprinkle on the coals. The practice of the priests in the temple was the altar of incense would have coals on it. The coals would be brought from the altar out front back to the altar of incense. And then they would sprinkle incense across those coals. They would sprinkle incense into the censer and those, that smoke and that, that smell rising up where we talk, where the Bible talks about that our prayers are a sweet fragrance in God's nostrils. It's a symbolism of the prayers of the saints. It's the prayers of these martyrs under the altar. It is the prayers of people asking for God to bring justice. It is the prayers of people asking God for help and hope in the midst of suffering. So he's given much incense, which means there are many prayers rising up to God 
imploring God for strength and suffering, for the evil of, to be defeated, and for his plan to come from to fulfillment. And as that incense, the smoke rises, and as the scent rises and fills the throne room of God, something unexpectedly happens as that same angel fills the censer with more coals and turns around and casts them down onto God's creation. This, this table of, or this altar of representing the prayers of God going up to him has now become a weapon. And it really symbolizes that God is now answering the prayers of his saints. What has been prayed for for generations is now coming to pass as those coals come down on God's creation and suddenly the silence is broken with peals of thunder and strange voices and flashes of lightning and a massive earthquake that seems to be not only in the heavenly realms but down into the earthly realms and God's wrath and God's judgment of sin has begun. The first trumpet blows. The shofar or the trumpet, you may remember from our study in Numbers, they would use it, it was a ram's horn, and they would blow that ram's horn every morning that they traveled, and everybody was to get in line and go, and it meant it was time to go. They would blow that trumpet in a different way for people to gather. They would blow it in a different way when it was time for war. If you remember back to the story of Jericho, they were to march around the city every day, march around the city, and they were to march quietly every day, the quiet before the judgment, very similar to what's happening here. And after the seventh day, they blew the shofars, they blew the trumpets, and the walls caved in. God's judgment came upon Jericho and God's enemies were destroyed. It's the same kind of hap idea happening here. And that first trumpet is blown and the skies of the earth are filled with massive hailstones. We've had hail around here. We had hail about this big a few years ago before the Dracho, and we got a new roof out of that. But these hailstones are not like that. These are massive hailstones. And where they hit, they destroy and they kill. There are balls of fire falling from the sky and mixed in with these hailstones and balls of fire that are coming down and hitting the earth is a bloody rain. Blood is just pouring down in the midst of the hailstones and the balls of fire. And as the unredeemed flee in terror over the shaking ground because of the earthquake that's happening, we're told that a third of the earth is left scorched, a third of the trees stand blackened, and all of the grass is gone. I don't know if you've ever been to a place where there's been forest fire after it's all over. We went to Yellowstone for a family vacation one year, and that was right after they'd had all those severe um, fires going through. 
And it was just weird. There weren't, there weren't lush pine trees. They were just these standing trees that were just black all over the hills. So Yellowstone wasn't exactly beautiful at that point in time. It was ugly. There's a story, the night of the Chicago fire that swept through Chicago. That's why they call it the Chicago fire. It's pretty profound. But at that same night, there was a fire that hit in Northeast Wisconsin called the Peshtigo fire. It burned more acreage. It burned massive, I mean, for tens of miles, it burned east and west and north and south. That used to be the logging center of Wisconsin and the Upper Peninsula. It burned the trees down. They say that uh, the fire was so intense in the city of Peshtigo where it started that, um, that people were burned to ashes right where they were standing and they would find melted metal and things from them uh, that just fell. Their watches, their coins would just melt and people ran for the water to try and get away from it. It was started by a spark from a train and it just burned all the way across that area. You can still today find burned stumps and trees laying in the forest from that fire, same night as the Chicago fire. It just didn't make the news, but it devastated the land up there and ruined all of the businesses and that turned it into kind of a wasteland until it grew back. But this is bigger than any forest fire that we've ever seen because a third of the earth is gonna be completely burned and all the gray green grass is going to be burned up, which means it's gonna affect the animals and what they're going to eat. As that finishes, the next trumpet sounds and what looks like a massive burning mountain is thrown into the sea. John doesn't even really know how to describe it. He says it's like somebody picked up a mountain on fire, a volcano, and just chucked it into the sea. At once, a third of the seas turn to blood. A third of the ships are destroyed and a third of the sea creatures die. And following immediately on the heels of that, another trumpet sounds and an even greater devastation follows. What seems to be a meteor falls from the heavens and as it impacts the earth's surface, all of the drinkable waters turn bitter and poisonous. So if you drink it, you die. Death begins to spread across the globe as a fourth trumpet is heard and it's promised by the prophet Job, the sun dims and the moon and the stars dim by a third. Night is longer and there's less heat from the sun so the temperatures fall. All of this is happening in rapid succession. The earth is coming undone. In the sixth seal, we saw the sky roll up like a scroll. And as if it couldn't get any worse for the earth dwellers, which we will see in Revelation, earth dwellers or the dwellers of the earth is another name for the unredeemed a bird flies over and it's a bird that feasts on the dead 
It's a bird that eats carrion. This says in our translation, an eagle. Others call it a vulture. The word can be used for either. But as that bird flies over the landscape, it cries out, woe, woe, woe to those who dwell on the earth. And there are yet three more trumpets to blow and it's gonna get worse. And what John is witnessing as he stands there and sees this vision of the future, what he is witnessing is what would be called the decreation of the universe. It is the end of the created heavens and the earth. I mentioned Genesis 1 a little while ago. Genesis 1 begins with a story, a story of new and beautiful beginnings. As Moses writes under the direction of the Holy Spirit, he tells us that in the the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. There was a time when God had created the heavens and he had created the earth. He had formed all the galaxies that exist, all the planets, all the stars, all the matter, and now we know all the antimatter. But while he had created all those things, it was dark. There was no light. And the question is, how could he have created the heavens where the stars are and the sun is, and there was no light? Good question. You can ask God how that worked when you meet him someday. I don't know. In the midst of the universe that he created was this small planet called Earth. And Moses tells us that it was a place of darkness and a place with a lack of purpose. We're told that the earth was without form and void. It was a wasteland. The earth was part of the heavens. It's an amazing perspective to me from scripture that it's, it's consistently referred to, things are, the creation is referred to as the heavens and the earth. The earth stands out specially in the heavens. We are surrounded by the heavens and the earth is part of the heavens, but it is singled out because God had a specific purpose to accomplish on that particular planet called earth. But it was a wasteland. It was without form and void, which both speak to a lack of purpose. And it was surrounded in darkness. And how long it existed in that state, we don't know. When we talk about a seven-day creation, that seven-day creation followed the creation of the heavens and the earth. And the Bible doesn't tell us how long of a time period there was between God creating the heavens and the earth and beginning to create life on the earth. But forever, whatever length of time that was, 
It was a place of chaos and it was a place of darkness and it was a place without purpose. But God did not leave it that way. There came a moment before time existed when the Holy Spirit moved down towards the earth and hovered in anticipation over its waters. That's the idea when it speaks of the Spirit of God hovered over the waters. It was, it's, you're supposed to pick up on the anticipation that something is about to happen. It's dark, it's watery, it's chaos. And something amazing was about to happen in that darkness and in that chaos. And suddenly God the Father spoke. And as the angels watched through the work of the Son of God and the power of the Spirit of God, light shone over this barren planet. Creation had begun. And by the time God's work was finished, the earth was a place of incredible beauty. We cannot imagine how beautiful it is because all we see is the creation corrupted by sin. But it would have been a place that just was filled with beauty and countless amazing life forms and ruled over by two humans with a mandate to fill the earth, to fill its entire surface with people who would worship God. From the rising of the sun to the setting of the sun, from the rivers to the rivers, from the shore to the shores, from seas to seas, the entire earth was to be a place where God was worshiped and that was Adam and Eve's job. They were to expand this little tract of land called the garden and they were to expand it across the face of the earth and bring the earth into a place of prosperity and purpose. And they were to have offspring that they raised to worship God so that the whole earth was full of his glory. That earth that he created was perfect. It would have been stunning and it was good. And God was happy with his work. But you're waiting for the rest of the story. The rest of the story is that Adam and Eve rebelled against God because they believed that the creation would give them more than the creator had or would. They knew God. They talked to God every evening. He came to them in the garden every day and communed with them. And they were to find all of their happiness and all of their satisfaction, all of their purpose in him. But they believed one little lie, that that one little lie being that if you eat the fruit of that tree, you will be more satisfied and you will be more happy than what God offers you. You will be like him and you won't need him. And they ate the fruit. 
such a small little thing. They didn't take a knife and stab anybody. They didn't steal anything. They didn't start a massive insurrection against God. They just ate fruit. One rule. They had one rule. And they broke it. And when they rebelled against God, when they believed that the creation could give them more than the Creator had, death began its evil reign over earth. And this beautiful creation began to die. Adam and Eve began to die. The plants began to die. And all the creatures of the earth began to die. And as Paul tells us in Romans 8, the creation began to groan. It began to groan under the weight of sin's curse. And the only person who was happy was Satan. Satan was thrilled and rejoiced as humanity filled the earth with violence and destruction. And we know what that's like. But God wasn't defeated and his purposes were not thwarted or overthrown. He had not given up on or withdrawn from his creation. And over and over again, God began to promise to his people and promise to humanity that evil would not win, Satan was not the conqueror, and that God would rescue his creation. God came near to his creation over and over again. And repeatedly, he showed mercy, he displayed love, and he proclaimed redemption. My mind moved on as I was thinking about this to another day of anticipation, to another day when the promises of God were fulfilled, when God miraculously placed an embryo in the womb of a woman and at his birth with breathless excitement, the angels proclaimed the coming of the promised savior, the conquering king. I've wondered what it was like in heaven with the angels and the saints at that time. We read that when God created, the angels rejoiced at what they saw him creating. And angels don't know the future. Angels are not omniscient. We're told that angels long to look into the things that have been given to us that we understand. And the singing that breaks out to the shepherds is indicative of the enjoyment and celebration as the anticipation of that baby was born and came into this world. But I've also wondered since they don't know the future as God does, how they felt that awful night when their creator hung on a cross and took his last breath. 
Did the angels know that he would rise from the dead? Did they understand more than his disciples? But whatever the case, we find the angels celebrating the next Sunday morning. I've got to believe that there was once again breathless anticipation as life rushed back into the body of Jesus. Did the angels understand the promises made that sin would be paid for through Jesus' sacrifice and that sin and death would be conquered through the resurrection? I don't know. But I'm sure their voices were filled with happiness and confidence as they said to the women who showed up, he's not here, he's risen. We read that like, he is not here, he is risen. But those angels were sitting on top of that tomb in celebration, in happiness, in joy. And as those women walked up and saw those angels, they said, he's not here. He's risen, just as he said. And this is what you need to do. You need to go talk to the disciples and tell them. A beautiful morning as those angels celebrated. And now centuries have passed. And while Satan has been dealt a mortal blow, the evilness of death and sin are still present in God's creation. We still feel it. We still experience it every day. But I want to say to you this morning, in the midst of all of our physical problems, in the midst of all of our spiritual struggles, in the midst of our emotional ups and downs, that God has made promises and God keeps his promises. All the things that the angels have rejoiced over through the centuries and the millennia are a result of God's coming through on his promises. And for God's people, for you and for me, for those who trust in Jesus' blood to redeem and the resurrection of Jesus for eternal life, there is hope in the promise of a new creation. And that is what Revelation is moving us forward to. And in this moment in chapter 8, we have the anticipation of the angels waiting for God to keep those last promises where he will judge sin, he will bring justice, and he will bring his people into a place where there is no sin. One person has said that God is glorified by his work of salvation through judgment. That one person wrote an entire book to prove that that is the theme of scripture. God's glory in salvation through judgment. And that's what we are seeing unfold here in Revelation. God's glory being displayed as he saves his people through the judgment of sinners. I want to say to you this morning as a child of God that your salvation was accomplished through God's judgment of Jesus 
who took your sin. And never forget that Jesus died in your place because of God's promise that the judgment of sin brings death. And when he judged Jesus, when he put your sin on him and he judged Jesus, death came, but salvation comes to us through that. And never forget that the accomplishment of the new creation comes through God's judgment of the existing creation. You are a new creation. You are a new man or a new woman in Christ with a heart of flesh instead of a heart of stone because your old self was destroyed when you died with Christ. So Paul says the old is gone and the new is come. You are a new creation. And that is what John is witnessing in these visions, is the new creation coming. It's the passing of the old creation and the coming of the new creation. Not just spiritually as he's done in us, but physically in the creation that exists. God judgment is pouring out on the sin-cursed, inanimate creation and the sin-loving humans who reject Christ's sacrifice. And those who deny their need of redemption will experience the wrath of God, and it is horrific. As we read just the first four trumpets being blown, and we haven't gotten to the last three that are the woes, and the bowls that are poured out of the wrath of God poured out. When the end has come, and as the Apostle Peter says, the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. That is the wrath of God pouring out on the sin-cursed creation as he blows up the old creation and prepares for the new creation. We see later in Revelation in chapter 20, John sees God seated on a throne and we're told that as God is seated on this throne and I will argue when we get there that it's actually Jesus. But it says that from his presence, earth and sky had fled away and no place was found for them. It's this image of God on a throne in the midst of space with nothing around him. Earth and sky were gone. The old creation is gone. It's burned up. And it's anticipating the new creation that is to come. But the unredeemed after judgment find themselves in a place of eternal torment just as God promised. And in chapter 21, of Revelation, John says the old heaven and the old earth have passed away. All of the horrors are over. All of the sin 
is gone. All of the cursed earth has vanished. And all of those galaxies that the telescopes show us, and honestly, I, I sit there and look at those pictures. We just watched a documentary on PBS about the James Webb Telescope and how it was built and the launching of it and the pictures that are coming back and new pictures came out in the last couple of weeks. It's stunning, but it will all be gone because it's all part of the old creation. But God's made promises and he keeps his promises. And for those of us who know Christ, can you imagine how wonderful it will be in the new creation? How beautiful it's going to be. The new heaven and the new earth. And as the bride of Christ, the city of the new Jerusalem comes down and sits on the earth and it's described for us with all of its beautiful colors. I, I, I collect stones, I collect gemstones. And I've always been fascinated with all of the colors of all the stones that are in that, those walls and the foundations. And the light from the Lamb of God and the throne coming out from inside of that as it lights up all those colors. On an earth where there is no sin and there is no death and there are no diseases and there are no Japanese beetles to eat your roses every season. What a place of beauty we will live in as God fulfills his promises. And that is our hope. And I want to say to you this morning, in the midst of all of the junk that surrounds us, you read the news, you hear about the continual murders and the brutality to people. There was an article, I didn't read it, I just saw the headline of a woman who was shoved off of a train in New York City, grandmother. That stuff just keeps happening more and more, or at least we're hearing more and more of it. And we have all of these wonderful people we call politicians who all of a sudden are like Jesus. I'm going to save this. I'm going to fix this. I'm going to make this all better. And people invest their hopes and their dreams and their finances in these people, believing their promises and they don't keep their promises because they're not Jesus. And it gets so frustrating and it gets so discouraging at times. And we watch all the garbage that takes place in relationships and all the insecurities of our jobs. And God calls us to set our affections on things that are above. To place our hopes and dreams, not in the things that will one day burn up, but in what God has promised. And he, he calls us to live and be faithful 
to display Christ's likeness in our lives to a hopeless world and be faithful to finish our course, to keep the faith. And we do that when we keep our eyes on the promises of God for the future and in the meantime live as citizens of the new creation. I remembered a quote this week. It just popped into my mind. I haven't heard it for 25 years, I think. And there's a dispute as to whether it was first said by a missionary named Adoniram Judson or a missionary named William Carey. But the quote is, the future is as bright as the promises of God. First time I heard that quote, I was just like, I'm not sure that even makes sense. But 25 years later, I understand it. And when we look forward into the future and everything keeps seeming to get worse and worse, the reality is there's going to be a day when that is done. And we should live hopefully, and we should live optimistically because God keeps his promises. And with that in mind, I would say to you, don't give your passions and your energy to the things that will one day dissolve. As you move forward in this life, pray to God to save the unredeemed. Do what Jesus said and pray that God's kingdom would come on earth as it is in heaven. And pray that the Holy Spirit would empower you to desire and do your Father's goodwill, to pursue Christ's likeness in your being and in your living. I was thinking, I almost was going to have us sing it this morning, and I didn't get the words um, put into the PowerPoint so that we can't. But there's that song that so many people love. When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea bills roll, whatever my lot you have caused me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. And that last verse is pulled from Revelation 6, 7, and 8. And God hastes the day when our faith will be sight, the clouds be rolled back as a scroll. The trump will resound and the Lord will descend. Even so, it is well with my soul. I love those two verses because they tell us to keep our hope in what is to come and to live in peace in the midst of it. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your justice. Although when I honestly think of your justice, uh, what you end up doing is a bit over the top from what I'm thinking. I want you to bring down certain individuals. I want you to take vengeance on particular people for what they've done to me. And I struggle honestly 
with the reality of, of the number of people who will find themselves with these hailstones and these, the fire, the blood raining down, living on an earth in the midst of decreation. There's a part of me that is sad. And I can convince myself that you've given them time and that they could see you in the creation and that they have rejected that and worshiped the creation rather than the creator. And yet my heart is still sad to think of what awaits those who reject Christ. But you are just and you are righteous and you only do what is good and you love and you're a God of mercy and you are kind. So I rest in who you are as I wrestle with the audacity and horror of your wrath. Father, I pray that the people we know that surround us um, who don't know you, God, I pray that the Holy Spirit would convince them of their sin that the Holy Spirit would convince them of their need of the righteousness of Jesus and the free offer of forgiveness through his blood. And that the Holy Spirit would convince them of the coming judgment. And Father, I pray that you'd help us as people who wrestle with sin ourselves and who deserve your wrath but know that your wrath has been expressed for our sin on your son. Help us to live in love and gratitude and hope of what you've done for us. And help us to display the fruit of the Spirit in our lives. Help us to live like Jesus so that people not only see you in the creation, but they see you in your power in our lives. And I ask this in your son's name. Amen.